Hi, you're listening to the Fearless Futures podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Naima McCloskey, the CEO and founder of Fearless Futures. And this is the show where we unpack and interrogate mainstream methods for equity and inclusion. I'll be sharing new perspectives as well as alternative approaches we have developed and deployed working in daring companies across sectors around the world. Each week, we will explore a new angle you won't want to miss. So stick around. In this episode, we explore fragility and its inverse accountability. Some of you may have heard of the term white fragility. It's a term coined by scholar Robin D'Angelo and has come into the mainstream to describe the behaviours of defensiveness, attack and resistance that white people engage in when confronted with how they're perpetuating racism or how it manifests generally. Her book, White Fragility, has become a bestseller as an explainer of this particular phenomenon. In some cases, the the fragility that emerges from white people actually happens before there has been any particular exploration of their behaviour in relation to perpetuating racism in the first place. Sometimes white people go on the attack, are defensive and are resistant just at the very mention of them being in fact called white. Now while this term white fragility has been coined by D'Angelo specifically with respect to white people's response to their um, confrontation with the ways in which racism may show up or indeed when they're even more fragile at just the very notion of being named as white and therefore part of a group we can in fact extrapolate the particular dynamic that Robin D'Angelo speaks to for any group that aren't subject to an oppression and how they might behave when they're confronted with their actions about how they in fact might be perpetuating an oppression. So we could kind of extrapolate it, and we do in our work, to non-disabled fragility or heterosexual fragility or cisgender fragility, for example. While the term itself has been used to describe what Robin D'Angelo terms a kind of lack of racial stamina from white people because they aren't used to being racialized. White people are invisibilized. And, and in fact, any group that um, benefits from oppression, we can see as being invisibilized. Their status within that wider system is not named or marked typically. And therefore, white people, non-disabled people, heterosexual people, when they are in fact marked and named within these parameters, behave in these very negative, defensive um, and attacking ways, which we'll go on to explore, you know, why specifically that happens. But I think what's really important here is in that invisibilization, we also need to kind of draw attention to the impact of that behaviour on those who are subject to the oppression in question, people of colour, disabled people, trans and non-binary people, and so on and so forth. Mia Mingus, who's a transformative justice practitioner, disability justice advocate, says the following in um, one of her blogs called Disability Justice is simply another term for love in her blog Leaving Evidence. Mia Mingus says, how many times have we been in rooms and shared our truths only to be met with backlash, avoidance or blank faces and awkward silence because people have not done their own work? 
to educate themselves to be able to meet us. And I, I, I kind of I draw on that quote because I think it's really important for us to acknowledge and kind of sit with the impact of fragility, white or otherwise, in relation to other systems of oppression and what it produces in our relationships on a day-to-day basis or what it what relationships it undoes in fact what's clear here is that the impact of exhibitions and engagements with fragility is painful for those who are on the receiving end who more often than not are confronted with this when they have offered up their experience of oppression in those moments. Before we go into kind of why does this behaviour emerge and what's the function of this fragile behaviour, I do want to kind of flag and acknowledge that there are many useful things that we can kind of take from Robin D'Angelo's framing of this fragility and how we can extrapolate it to other oppressions and I think it's a really useful frame actually to understand how we're behaving and how others might be behaving in relation to us to kind of name what's going on. There are also kind of rightly a number of critiques of Robin D'Angelo's analysis insofar as it's very much located at the interpersonal level by which I mean the ways in which racism is kind of showing up at that micro level, perhaps without the acknowledgement or the kind of zooming out to recognise and identify the broader structures that inform that behaviour and the kind of wider systemic nature of, of these issues. So I think it's important to flag that. Um, while also holding on to the fact that this can be a useful framing and way of understanding behaviours that are quite routine um, and commonplace from those who, you know, benefit from the status quo. So if we do go to the questions of like, why does this fragility, why does this behaviour emerge? I think we can say that in part, It's because of the ways in which we've been taught in the mainstream about how oppressions manifest. So, for example, in the case of racism, you know, the idea that people have in their minds as to who perpetuates racism, or indeed, to use other language, who is a racist, if we were kind of going to ascribe that identity onto someone, we would see it as somebody that belongs, for example, to the KKK, um, to use a US example, or somebody who's a member of the English Defence League or the National Front in the case of the UK, for example. And this is because of the ways in which we're broadly taught to understand oppression as being that of individualised actions. So we come to the kind of bad apple idea, the idea that there's one or two individual people where this negative behaviour exists, but that most people, in fact, almost everybody else, isn't that and isn't part of that. Now, the mainstream framing of this kind of individualised way of seeing 
oppression ultimately preserves the status quo because it means that basically nobody meets the criteria of what it is to perpetuate racism and therefore everyone can sort of get on with their lives or everybody who um, isn't subject to this oppression can get on with their lives more specifically and doesn't have to take responsibility for anything in this regard. It's such that racism or any other oppression is somebody else's problem and is sort of very, very, very far out of sight. So the the kind of the next question I have is then what is the function of this behaviour, this this fragility behaviour in particular? And I think that it's clear that this behaviour is a diversionary tactic on the part of the person who's exhibiting fragility because they're able, through defensiveness, through attack, to turn the conversation away from the specificities of what's been raised with them. And instead, it becomes about their feelings and the nature of how they've been engaged with. So, for example, the person might say, and this, you know, this is also part um, of, of the kind of fragile existence. I'm not the racist, you're the racist. So sort of going on the attack to turn the tables, as it were, um, and to and to claim that the observation of the ways in which somebody has perpetuated racism is in fact what is racist, but not the person who may have been invited into examining their behaviour in the first place. And we see again here that this individualised understanding of how oppression plays out through the kind of bad apple um, idea or construct is at the root of our understandings here and the consequences of this are that transformation is kind of prevented where it might have been possible because of our misunderstandings collectively I would say about responsibility in general and also how oppression exists and and our understanding of it more broadly as it plays out in society so we have a sort of binary thinking at the root here we have a bad apple there are very few of them and then we have all the rest of them which are good apples but ultimately we're seeing everything as part of individual apple counting um as it were and i think you know i think this binary thinking is a really kind of important thing for us to get our head around as we kind of dig into well if it's not about individual bad apples and it's actually about something bigger it is about a system what does it mean for our individual participation and and therefore our collective participation within these wider systems and how might that move us out of fragility and into something more powerful now what i want to kind of um really note here is that where we get to if we kind of take this thinking outside of the individualized nature of the ways in which harm can be enacted you know the the bad apple idea and kind of shifting that I personally fearless futures more broadly owe a huge amount of debt to many 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 thinkers that do the hard everyday work in the space of accountability and what it looks like to bring that into um our relationships and our organizations and i've used therefore for the first time this notion of accountability because i really see that as being the departure point from the individualized bad apples concept but also 
what we want to be striving towards when we're moving away from the behaviors of fragility and our ideas that ultimately produce that behavior. And so for me personally, Mariam Carber is an amazing um, abolitionist, uh, transformative justice practitioner, activist, educator, um, whose thinking on this is just just so exciting and powerful. And there are others whose um, work, I think it's really worth crediting their, their writing and their thinking. Mia Mingus, who um, I already kind of flagged earlier, alongside Leon Staz of a um, an organisation called Spring Up, Sarah Shulman, Anne Russo, for example, and others. So there is a huge amount of very, very exciting thinking about ways in which we can move out of our bad apples um, analysis and action into something far more transformative. Um, and the accountability notion that many of these people are kind of dreaming up and practising is I think where there's there's huge promise for all of us to kind of experiment with and engage with. This is to say that everything I'm about to say now is not a kind of distillation of their thoughts. It's been built on a lot of their thinking and the ways in which we have interpreted it. So this is, you know, any misinterpretations are not to be ascribed back to, to these, um, these wonderful people. Rather, um, this is a kind of uh, synthesising of the ways in which we might think about these in all their imperfections as well. So let's kind of think about how we might kind of emerge with some new building blocks as to what else might be possible instead of fragility um, and how we might get to accountability and in our relationships and therefore in our organisations in relation to these issues. The logics of systems of oppression are such that they broadly organise us into binaries of good people or bad people, innocent people or guilty, victim or perpetrator. And we might, and that's a kind of broad underpinning of a system of oppression. Those who are subject to it are on the negative end of that construction and those who benefit from it are on the positive end. But all the while systems of oppression, while they're doing this, are basically rendered invisible and the outcomes of these systems are therefore seen as just, you know, the way things are, they're just normal. Because we haven't shed a light on what's producing these outcomes. It's just the way things are. So when systems of oppression are kind of invisibilized, and obviously, and I want to be clear that this is by design, this is how systems of oppression work, we can only ascribe blame for a behavior to an individual. Um, We can only say that that individual is uniquely bad and guilty, for example, for perpetuating oppression because there are no wider, there's nothing bigger than that individual that could be involved to produce certain outcomes. So individuals become solely responsible for the entirety of the outcomes of the system of oppression. Because of that kind of totalizing location of being bad and and guilty for perpetuating an oppression because we have no other nothing else to visibilize or shine a light on in this individuals don't really have a choice within that system other than to deny diminish deflect and defend themselves from 
taking responsibility for any hurt or harm that they are in fact responsible for because otherwise all that they become is that uniquely and individually bad apple as an individual now this is not to kind of remove responsibility from individuals in their relationships it's also but or and it's also about proportionate responsibility in these contexts and about a broader understanding of how the conditions that produce our particular individual behaviours. So if we were to kind of then have another framing, we could visibilise systems of oppression. And what we would see if we take that systemic analysis is that oppression is almost a default in our relationships, our workplaces, our communities, society more broadly, right? If we were to kind of honour the systemic nature of oppression, then reproducing behaviours that perpetuate oppression, we're going to be able to see them as basically highly likely and extremely ordinary ways of engaging in the world. We, We have to move out if we have a systemic analysis from a bad individual apple phenomena uh, or narrative for kind of why things happen and therefore we're kind of confronted with perhaps a very uncomfortable reality if we're kind of in the space of systemic oppression that we all have the capacity to hurt people and to harm people that we all already have to differing extents and that we all probably will do so in the future too. And that's 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 a lot because that's a that's a really big departure from everything we're told and it also means we each have to sit with our capacity as human beings to do hurt and harm. It it's uncomfortable because many of us prefer to see ourselves as good people at first and foremost with good intentions that's safer that's safest if we can it's it's also a very useful defense from from accusation we get to distance ourselves from the very very bad people which again makes us feel better even while it might not be a very accurate analysis and it means that none of us get to claim ourselves as sort of pure from what's going on in the world which many of us perhaps like to do um, particularly when it comes to challenging oppression to see ourselves as distant um, distinct from all those other bad people who we are better than perhaps I really want to emphasize again that this analysis is not about removing responsibility at all but it's also about understanding what produces that so that we can think about what else we can do in the systems that we find ourselves in to make space for new possibilities of how we might show up and I think creating environments where we have a collective understanding of what produces hurt and harm and where that comes from and therefore attributing proportionate responsibility is one thing I've learned from many of the people who I named earlier towards making accountability a part of the ways in which we are in relationship with each other what is accountability what we have learned as an organization from lee and stars of spring up 
is that accountability is taking proportionate responsibility for the outcomes of our actions. Accountability is a verb and a continuous process. What I think is really important about the term proportionate responsibility is actually kind of speaking to what can happen in some situations where people feel really bad for things they might have done and they move into the realm of sort of self-flagellation, taking responsibility for things that they just simply cannot be responsible for. And when we start to take responsibility for things that we aren't responsible for, it actually diminishes the very act of doing accountability because accountability that's kind of unboundaried no longer has the kind of power beneath it or indeed can have a sustainable commitment to it because if we're taking responsibility for things that we really cannot be responsible for our commitment for change will never be fulfilled um, because of that significant gap between ourselves in relation to the impact of what we've done and what we are saying we can be responsible for so that's a really I think an exciting part of this that's not an excuse to um, reduce one's proportionate responsibility either and to say well I'm only going to be responsible for this tiny 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 little bit Um, because we know also that those who benefit from the status quo with respect to oppression have a tendency to take very little so we can go more than than the very little responsibility but this is just a kind of shining a light on some behaviors that we can do when we're sitting particularly in a site of shame in relation to our behavior we can go beyond that which we actually are able to be responsible for and that diminishes the possibility of committing to new behavior which is of course key in that second half of a definition of accountability where it's a verb and a continuous process. Something else that I think is kind of really exciting to kind of um, really grapple with is how accountability is typically used every day in our organizations and in our relationships and most of the time when people say that they you know that they want accountability What I've observed now I've kind of been engaging with this new lens is that most of the time what they really mean is that they want a person to be punished or they want revenge. And what I've learned from Mariam Carber in particular is that what accountability doesn't mean is punishment. What it does mean is proportionate consequences. And punishment is very distinct from that. But oftentimes when we're talking about accountability... We really just want somebody to suffer very badly to make ourselves feel better. And I think that is obviously a very, you know, a legitimate thing for human beings to feel. And this isn't a kind of highly horse position, but in in the framing from many of these thinkers and practitioners, we just need to be really clear about that distinction. So it's fine to want punishment we just have to then say that that's what we want and it's fine to want vengeance and we then just have to say that that's what we want but being clear that within this particular framing that that isn't what accountability or doing accountability might look like and I think for each of us to be really clear about our language in this regard because it shapes our action because it shapes our collective realities is really really important And so a phrase like hold people to account, what I've also kind of learned from many of these thinkers and and practitioners is that we can't hold other people to account if we're truly existing within this new 
idea of accountability that isn't about punishment or revenge because accountability in this new framing is not a coercive relationship and to hold people to account is to kind of coerce them in some way. So if we aren't sort of coercing people into accountability what happens because we we live in a world where people don't want to take accountability right we've already just been through all of those reasons why people would not want to take accountability um themselves so the question that then sort of emerges which i think is so exciting but really um you know a radical departure actually from how many of us are taught and our kind of mainstream understandings of the world actually the question that we then are kind of confronted with is what conditions are required for people to step in and take responsibility for their actions and to hold themselves to account? How is accountability something that people invite into their lives and their practice as part of their growth and part of their commitment to to this kind of longer term goal of just relationships and a just world what is required from each of us for that to become a possibility and there I think that this can't be an individual pursuit I mean I think we can of course start individually and um, Mia Mingus in particular speaks really powerfully about this kind of accountability as an individual commitment and what it means to be accountable to ourselves to do the things that nurture us and to be in right relationship with ourselves as that starting point so I think that's hugely important and I think for me something to kind of pause and reflect on and I also recognize that within workplace contexts this requires a collective of people coming together almost to produce a micro set of new conditions perhaps of new ways to be with each other that invites this new frame of accountability and recognises the ways in which systems of oppression play out in our lives and therefore what we need to do from a preventative perspective and the ways in which we need to be proactive about challenging the harm and hurt that is ordinary and seeing ourselves as connected to these wider systems and also really seeing accountability as something that is continuous and a verb and about proportionate responsibility and holding all of those things at the same time um, such that we can move out of our bad apples shaming revenge vengeful and kind of punishment oriented setups um, that are themselves a product of these systems of oppression that we sort of live out all the time um, day to day. Very finally, to create any sort of microcosm that is a new paradigm and therefore doing accountability within this particular paradigm that means kind of fragility is to some extent limited, diminished or managed because we are all human beings and maybe we won't always show up in perfect ways and 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 that's to be expected and that's what I think some of this thinking invites us to lean into it it's to be expected and therefore how do we um plan for it such that we can work through it all of this is really experimental and iterative work there are no clean perfect answers to how this can 
be done. Um, that it's always going to be these five steps that a, an organisation takes to kind of invite such a paradigm into into their world. And for us at Fearless Futures, this is something we're learning and developing and kind of engaging with conceptually in our work and in our own practice and therefore kind of committed to developing internally as our first step hopefully with a view to kind of sharing those insights of our kind of fumbles and failures with others um, as part of that collective learning so for anyone who's interested in in these kind of new ways of thinking please engage with the kind of scholars and practitioners that I mentioned. Um, They are doing this kind of very, very actively. And then I think in the spirit of experimental and iterative practice, go forth, engage and know that messing up, I think is an inevitable part of, of this process. Thank you for listening to the Fearless Futures podcast. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe, rate and share this episode with a friend. If you're interested in learning more about the work that we do at Fearless Futures, please visit our website, fearlessfutures.org. Till next time.